0: John Wayne needed to make a movie, any movie, really. That's what it had come to for the Duke back in 1954. He'd spent the past two decades building his brand in westerns, going from a little used bit player to the biggest star of the 50s a living, breathing avatar of American values. Some of those movies were good. Some were not.
1: I return the horse, but let the fate of its rider be a warning to anyone who attempts to enter the Sally Ann Mine. Signed, The Phantom.
0: But they all seem to send the same message. If you had a flag to salute, a ward
2: to fight, or a Native American to kill, Wayne was your man. Uh, Most people believe that he actually was a cowboy because he played a cowboy or a gunslinger or an outlaw or just a Western hero over and over in at least 100 movies. That's Ryan Udiwilligan. He wrote
0: Killing John Wayne, the book on the Duke's death. And he's going to walk
2: us through this unbelievable story. So he really wore this image and wore the costuming. And everywhere he went, he would have a hat and boots. And so people definitely projected that image onto him.
0: And they weren't alone. Wayne bought into his own mythology lock, stock, and barrel. He wasn't just playing these characters. He really believed this stuff, that the West was won, not stolen. But in the mid-50s, something had changed. After two decades of bloody battles on screen and non-stop ascent, John Wayne's schedule had come to a standstill. He still had his revolver at the ready, but he needed a movie to make. Howard Hughes, the uber-wealthy playboy and eccentric head of RKO Pictures, had blackmailed Wayne into a three-picture deal refusing to release one of the star's movies until he signed on the dotted line. Now, a half decade later, Wayne was ready to shoot just about anything to get his freedom back. And in a sense, that's exactly what he did. One legend has it, he picked a script out of a trash can in the RKO offices and signed up Sight Unseen.
2: John Wayne fished it out, he saw there was a script, he flipped through it for a couple of minutes and said, hmm, how about this? The
0: film was The Conqueror. The concept was terrible. The Duke would star as Genghis Khan, the brutal warlord who'd raped and pillaged his way across multiple continents. Not ideal casting for the all-American movie star, but Wayne was excited to shake up his image. At least he was excited for now. The team behind the project was a who's who of people Wayne shouldn't have been working with. Oscar Millard, the writer, knew next to nothing
2: about the Mongol emperor. Right before the meeting, the legend goes he was looking through an encyclopedia just to bring himself to speed on what the subject matter was and what they were looking for, still managed to get the job and didn't do much research after that. Dick
0: Powell, the director, knew next to nothing about directing. He was an actor, an old song and dance man, really, who directed a total of one movie at that point. A low-budget thriller called Split Second, about a nuclear test disaster. The dark irony of that will become apparent very soon. Split second by split second, time is running out, and certain death is closing in. Now Powell had to oversee a huge sword and sandal
2: epic, one of the biggest movies RKO had ever produced. So a lot of people are saying that he's not equipped and he doesn't have the experience to pull it all together. Maybe
0: someone should have listened to, quote, a lot of people. But most were just happy to have a job as the industry hit tough times. And so they all convinced themselves this was actually the perfect John Wayne movie. I mean, it checked all the boxes, a conquering alpha male on horseback, swooping in to kill some natives and take their land, a real Chinese Western, as they took to calling it.
2: Wayne signed on, the money was lined up and it was all coming together. So in the spring of 1954, everyone's in a mad frenzy doing the costumes and the set design.
0: Sets that were a mishmash of different regions and time
2: periods. Costumes that prioritize cleavage over credibility. They wanted to actually go to Mongolia to film this movie. A lot of movies hadn't been uh, shot outside of the U.S. at this point in time. It was only just starting to happen, so... They were worried about that and they decide, okay, it's going to be too expensive. So then they look in Death Valley. It's going to be too remote and too hot. So when they're going over Utah, they think, oh, this actually looks like a good stand-in for the Gobi Desert.
0: They decided to shoot in an area known as Snow Canyon. With its red sandstone formations, it was a perfect match for Mongolia. What's that? It in no way resembles Mongolia? Uh, well, just go with it. They were in a hurry, and so were we. And so, mere weeks after greenlighting the picture, they had their star, they had their set, and they were ready to roll film. But what they didn't know, couldn't know, was that by picking that script out of the trash, the Duke had begun a deadly domino effect. Because The Conqueror wasn't just a lousy movie. It was perhaps the deadliest in Hollywood history. They were about to shoot downwind from a nuclear testing site and watch their cast and crew die one by one. I'm Adam McKay and this is Death on the Lot. Tonight, the fall of the studio system, the rise of the nuclear age and the lives caught in the fallout. This is episode eight the bomb that killed John Wayne.
3: This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depth and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Somewhere between Vegas and Salt Lake City on a long, lonely strip of U.S. Interstate 91 lies St. George, Utah. In the spring of 1954, it was nothing more than a sleepy desert oasis, a small-town dream for the largely Mormon population, surrounded by ranches, Native American tribes, and a government testing site about, oh, 137 miles upwind. Now, it was suddenly home to the cast and crew of The Conqueror and the biggest movie star in the world. Wayne, co-star Susan Hayward, and the principal cast had flown in by charter plane and nearly botched the landing thanks to 55 mile per hour winds. It was an inauspicious start. To make the remote location work, The entire town was basically commandeered. The local high school was turned into a costume shop. The Boy
2: Scouts donated chairs just so everyone had a place to sit. So John Wayne is living in someone's house who decided to vacation during the summer. Another person actually left to give up their home for Susan Hayward to reside in during the summer. That's
0: Ryan Uta Willigan.
2: The cast and crew are co mingling with. All the people who reside in this town are eating at the local restaurants, becoming friends, even playing baseball games with them. And at least at first, it was a delightful time. So it becomes this very sweet, happy time to begin with because even in John Wayne's words, he thought that this town represented all the American small town ideals that you see in movies, like like, uh, classic movies that John Wayne would make.
0: The problem started once the cast and crew made the trek up the bumpy, half-constructed road to Snow Canyon in a fleet of borrowed school buses. For one, everything, every costume, every wig, every crack and
2: crevice, even the food they were eating was covered in sand. There's a lot of wind, high winds that are topping all of the food with this dust and it's going into people's mouths and teeth. They nicknamed it Utah chili powder because it was on everything.
0: On the rare days when the wind wasn't whipping through this set, they used giant fans to blow this sand back up
2: so the shots would match. There was no escape. It's also very hot because it's the summer, so they're dealing with 120 degree Fahrenheit temperatures.
0: There was no shade in sight, so they all stood out in the baking sun for hours at a time. Sunscreen was still a fairly new concept in the States and hadn't made its way to the edge of the hot Mojave Desert. These folks were cooking in their heavy fur costumes. People began fainting and vomiting from heat stroke, and when they went to drink water, things
2: just got worse. They have to construct everything, so there's a well that they dig for cast and crew to have water. But when it did rain, the well would overflow and delay production. But of course the water is mixing with all of the sand and all of the dust, and it's very rough conditions. Understaffed and stretched
0: thin, some 700 locals from St. George were hired to work on the shoot. And when that wasn't enough, members of the local Paiute Native American tribe were brought in for basically no money to serve as extras. The producers figured they could pass as Mongolians in a pinch. Delays were constant. Budgets reworked and tossed. Somehow this movie, the one with mud water and crunchy craft services, was already one of the most expensive in RKO's history and that was a big problem. This thing now had to be a hit, or the whole studio could go under. So how did it happen? How did RKO, one of the original Big Five studios, the home of King Kong, Citizen Kane, It's a Wonderful Life, how did it sink so low? Two words, Howard Hughes, Here's another record flight round the world, made in a two-engine Lockheed monoplane by millionaire Howard
3: Hughes.
2: Howard Hughes has to be the most interesting figure who's ever lived. I know talking to a lot of people lately, there's some parallels that they've been drawing between himself and Elon Musk. Uh, However, I think Howard just wins for pure insanity and boldness, and he had his fingers in so many pies. He flew across the Atlantic to the French capital in the record time of 16
0: hours, 35 minutes. The wealthy playboy had bought RKO on a whim in 1948. It was a chance to play Hollywood heavyweight and make movies about his twin obsessions, high-flying planes and low-cut dresses.
2: A lot of the reason why he was in Hollywood in the first place was to uh, meet young starlets and he would promise them a career or give them money, give them a home, uh, give them acting lessons and exchange for basically seducing them, basically sexual favors. And he did this repeatedly.
0: One actress, Terry Moore, refused to sleep with Hughes unless they were married. So he held a wedding on a boat in international waters. She was 19, he was 43. He took her virginity, then destroyed the logbooks. But it turns out there's more to running a studio than just seducing starlets. Just a week before his deal for RKO closed, a Supreme Court ruling created a new legal standard that would in time force the studios, all studios, to sell off their biggest moneymaker, the movie theaters. It was called the Paramount Decree, and in many ways, it was the beginning of the end of old Hollywood.
2: Well, RKO, ever since Howard Hughes took over in 1948, just continuously lost money every single year. Everything was flopping. They had little success.
0: Not wanting to have his hand forced, Hughes immediately started selling, first the movie theaters, then everything else. If it wasn't nailed down, it was sold or fired. He cut large swaths of the studio's workforce and then hung over the shoulder of the few remaining employees, trying to learn each of their trades for himself. Not that he ever stepped
2: foot on the studio lot. His fear of germs kept him far away. Howard Hughes really ran RKO into the ground because of his uh, mental deterioration. So when you see the output in that five six year span really his attention to detail is is not going into quality it's going to the strange interests that he had and he just uh, he would throw all sorts of money and resources to make these films at any cost and any length so productions would drag on for months at a time and sometimes he would just cancel productions almost out of spite, or just a change of heart.
0: By the mid-1950s, The Conqueror was one of the few RKO movies actually shooting, And that meant that Hughes was paying attention, never a good thing. One day, he'd call up Pal, the director, screaming about the skyrocketing budget. The next, he'd have some brilliant
2: idea. Such strange nitpicky notes, so he would say, hmm, The scene, I think, needs a bear. So they would bring on a bear just on set, which would add to the cost, and they would, uh, with this bear, just make the bear do a little dance.
0: The bear was the least of the production's problems. Wayne was a mess. He let himself go while waiting for the project to get going. Then, in a rush to get back in shape for the shoot, began taking
2: amphetamines by the handful. Before he knew it, he was hooked. John Wayne is popping what's called dexedrine pills, so he wanted to get this rippling physique and it would suppress his appetite and make him look strong, but it's an amphetamine, so he is really hyper and he is shaking uh, to a point where he can't control his limbs. Like He has to wrap a towel around his arms because his hands are shaking so badly.
0: The makeup wasn't helping his mood either. He'd hated the yellow face applications he had to wear to play Genghis
2: Khan. They use these rubber bands that they hide to make a, more of an elasticity in his eyes to make the, the pronounced slants that they wanted. They put the uh, Fu Manchu mustache the costume that really isn't based in any reality, just more of a stereotype uh, taken from a bit of everything in, in Asian costumes and architecture and style. He was also
0: struggling with the more verbose and supposedly ethnic dialogue.
2: Oscar Miller wrote it in this weird dialect that's more of a shakespearean tone he said he wanted to put this arcane flourish into it and so he put a lot of time and energy just making this very strange poetic dialogue that doesn't fit
0: every line seemed to be broken up and put back together in some kind of random order instead of i don't doubt it the line became i doubt it not rolling off the tongue it exactly wasn't plan
1: Seize Urga, and bleed my strength in siege of Wang Khan City."
2: And then apparently John Wayne tried to speak in a Mongolian accent. There is no tape of that, but he tried to do it with an accent and realized that wasn't going to work.
1: One of my brothers, Jamuga and Kassar.
2: Wang holds them captive.
1: Strike camp, we ride on Urga.
0: Realizing he was in over his head, Wayne went back to what he knew best, telling Pal he was now gonna play Khan as a gunslinger. This is a cowboy picture, he conveniently decided. And it made sense in a way. He didn't hire Wayne to disappear into character to do that dirty shirt school of acting, as he called it. He'd spent the last 20 years playing the same part for a reason, people liked it. As cultural critic Grail Marcus wrote for the Los Angeles Times in 1979, the Duke was a professional American. He wears the mantle of manifest destiny easily, happy to represent America to the world, to itself and to himself.
4: He plays this valiant hero. Um, subduing threats uh, to freedom and protecting American womanhood, uh, slaughtering Native Americans.
0: That's Dr. Kristen Cobez dumay the best-selling author of Jesus and John Wayne.
4: He's not the only cowboy hero of this time. Uh, but if you look at his movies, he is able, more than anybody else, to kind of fuse this cowboy heroism with a more um, modern military heroism. And you can see the same traits celebrated and the same violence justified.
1: Before I'm through with you, you're gonna move like one man and think like one man. If you don't, you'll be dead. He became
2: a big star during the Second World War uh, because his politics really, he didn't, fight in the second world war himself but he encouraged a lot of people to enlist he didn't need to fight in wars overseas he needed to win wars in movie theaters uh he did a lot of entertaining and then he was the chair of a committee to actually uh stop any uh left-wing communist ideals during that time as well. So he very much leaned heavily into his politics and ideologies and this American right-wing macho hero, I, I, I guess, unstoppable, unflappable, tough guy.
4: He becomes emblematic of this kind of cowboy hero. Um, But that cowboy hero has resonance, such wide resonance, with Americans of all stripes because of this Cold War context.
1: There are a lot of wonderful things written into our Constitution that were meant for honest, decent citizens.
0: Remember his heroic turn in Big Jim McLean as a HUAC investigator beating in commie's brains?
1: We built a case and proved to any intelligent person that these people are communists. Enemy agents.
4: This threat is out there, and we need good men. We need strong men to fight uh, communism. And there are good guys, and there are bad guys. And we know who the good guys and the bad guys are. It's very clear. And the good guys, the white guys with the gun, right, those are the true heroes.
0: But all that was failing him now. Wayne was first attracted to Khan because of his strength. He was a leader, a man's man. But the movie star had forgotten a key part of his own persona. Wayne was an all-American
2: man, not a clumsily written not-American man. So there's a lot of things going wrong on this set, and uh, a lot of people were not happy realizing that it's not going to be a good movie. I think halfway through, John Wayne with his running yellow face makeup every day and just being covered in sweats and sand and maybe seeing some of the dailies, just, yeah, realized, hmm, this is not gonna be good. And Wayne's Conqueror
0: co-stars? Well, they weren't doing much better. Susan Hayward was one of the most popular actresses alive, thanks to movies like My Foolish Heart and The Lusty Men.
1: Ain't that pretty out here in the car to
0: play in post office?
3: Somebody's going to get real fed up with you and beat your head in with a rake handle.
0: Who are you, friend? And yet, here she was, playing little more than eye candy. One rumor has it that Hughes cast her as revenge. He was still bitter over the one date they went on that didn't go as planned. And of course, because this was The Conqueror, everything that could go wrong
2: did. Hayward, as often happens on movie sets, was attacked by a panther. Apparently, uh, there was a part of her costume that it was hypnotized by, and if she didn't react as quickly as she did, she might have been severely injured. Another co star, Pedro Armaderez, was thrown from a
0: horse and had his jaw broken. He had to actually go in the hospital and get his jaw rewired, apparently. That's not to mention the days that production was delayed when a stunt falcon got sick. And I know a lot of people are listening to this and like, oh, that's crazy. What a crazy movie. In that case, don't laugh at that. Stunt falcons are part of the backbone of Hollywood. And if they're not feeling good, you don't roll film. Anyway, morale quickly plummeted faster than a sick falcon. Everyone started to realize they were working on a dud. Wayne popped his pills to get through the day. Hayward drank, which
2: wasn't easy in the middle of a dry Mormon town. She's turning to alcohol to cope and actually led her to go to John Wayne, who is just getting newly married at this point in time to to the the house that he was staying in and challenging his wife-to-be to a fight because she wanted him. She apparently loved John Wayne and wanted to actually fight for him.
0: By the time the shoot ended, everyone was ready to move on, go home. They were excited to get out of that irradiated desert. Oh, I mentioned that part, right? Well, yeah, see, this whole time, amidst the heat stroke and the pills and the bad sand-covered dinners, they'd also been shooting in a nuclear fallout zone. For those people who don't know that much about movie making that's not ideal. The cast and crew had heard chatter about nuclear fallout when they first arrived in St. George. Locals were still
2: talking about the tests that had taken place just the year before. Very quickly, just in friendly banter, did they say, "Ah, we had some uh, fallout come down this way. We're actually nearby the tests and uh, we we're encouraged to go watch and The cast and crew are taken aback by this. It's something that they did not really take into account when they did the location scout. Director Dick Powell stopped everything. A call goes over to Howard Hughes, who, by the way, never does step foot in Utah or During the entire filming of the movie, he's not involved. He just does everything from his office. And he calls the Atomic Energy Commission, says, is it safe? They say yes. So he reports back to the cast and crew, who are still a little unnerved. The crew thought Powell was in over his head, and that Hughes was
0: playing crazy. And so it fell to John Wayne, in full Genghis Khan regalia, to get up and make a rah-rah speech that it would be un-American to not trust the government. If the AEC said they were safe, then by God, they were. And just to assure them that everything was okay, Wayne brought a Geiger counter to set. This was a handheld device that, well, basically detects nuclear radiation. And Wayne was positive it would quiet everyone's fears.
2: So he trudged up to the top of a nearby bluff and turned it on. So he starts to wave it in the sand and this thing goes ballistic. It's beeping and making all sorts of noise. The Geiger counter went wild. And John Wayne's response is, hmm, this thing must be broken. And who could blame him? Where did that Geiger counter get off?
0: Disagreeing with the good old U.S. of A. Didn't it know they had a movie to make? And so, in the shadow of one bomb, the cast and crew got to work on making another.
2: The Anthrax Threat. Available now.
5: The greatest secret of the war comes into the open. From hidden factories over the nation, under heavy army protection, the first atomic bomb was assembled. On the New Mexico desert, Allied scientists unleashed its stupendous power.
0: On July 16th, 1945, at 5.30 a.m., The world shifted on its axis. A nuclear device was successfully detonated for the first time at the Alamo Gordo bombing range in New Mexico. As part of the top secret Manhattan Project, the atomic age was born.
5: This was the end result of $2 billion spent on research and production of years of feverish labor to harness atomic power ahead of the enemy.
0: Following the blast, Senator Brian McMahon of Connecticut called it, quote, the most important thing in history since the birth of Jesus Christ. And now that they had it, It was time to use it. Little Boy and Fat Man were dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians. The Second World War would end within days.
5: In war, atomic power can level an entire nation in a few days. In peace, this incredible energy opens limitless horizons
2: was a lot of money and years spent toiling over this uh, this technology and so when they finally had it uh, and could use it to win wars to threaten people and then get wind that uh, the soviet union was also developing the same kind of technology and you get the start of the cold war era you get the united states really ramping up what they want to do as far as nuclear testing goes and where they want to do it
0: The new mission was to build better, bigger bombs than the Kami's and to do it faster. The South Pacific recently freed from the Japanese threat was deemed the perfect place to test these weapons, far away from more inhabited
2: areas. So those early nuclear tests are happening in the Pacific islands, uh, particularly Bikini Atoll and there isn't a lot of sympathy for uh, islanders and people who are living there. There there really is no warning. Uh, when we look at, I, I believe it was maybe about six or seven years after that was the first major study and look that these uh, indigenous people, the Pacific Islanders, were developing rashes and cancers and throwing up and having stillborn babies. It was really a, a gruesome sight to behold. The South Pacific
0: was becoming a problem for the U.S. government, and not just because of all those people getting sick and dying. It was very costly. It was hard to predict weather patterns. That's Kim Stringfellow, artist, educator, and writer.
6: You also had to, the costs of bringing um, equipment, military into the Pacific in these remote areas. There was a lot of different aspects that um they
2: wanted to really have it closer to home they actually tried to go to the Galapagos islands which is a head scratcher looking back like that would have been just a, a nuclear nightmare they settled on nevada
0: thanks to its remote surface and sparsely populated land as one federal agency put it, the Mormons and Native Americans who lived in the area were, quote, a low use segment of the population.
6: It was so um, underpopulated. And there's always been this idea that our desert regions are wastelands. It was like, this is the perfect place to blow up stuff.
0: The hope was that the normal southerly winds would blow fallout away from the more densely populated areas. And so in 1951, the government moved in, ignoring a treaty, taking over large swaths of Shoshone tribal land. They built a town from scratch to house personnel with a post office, church, even a movie theater. And they got to testing nukes.
6: Atmospheric testing began in 1951 in Nevada. And um, Upshot Knothole was a series of 11 tests that um, happened between March and June of 1953. And it was considered to be one of the most deadly series of atomic tests throughout that period because of the amount of radioactive Elements
2: and material. It's a very odd series of tests. Like they have a model house, and they wanted to see what, if it could withstand a nuclear bomb. And they had all these different mannequins with J.C. Penny clothing and actual belongings that people would have in their household, just to see what effects it would have. They were trying to open up safes with nuclear bombs. Like it really is a very odd series of tests. I've been the For the culture at large, there was,
0: in a way, something new and almost fun about all of this.
6: Yikes.
2: In the early
0: 1950s, atomic fever hit hard, especially in nearby Las Vegas. The city was trying to avoid any post-war economic downturns, and now it saw a way to get some butts in the seats. Nuclear bombs blasting off in the desert, their mushroom clouds visible from the strip, became the perfect show for Sin City.
2: They're coming to Las Vegas to feel the rumbles that are are happening because the casinos are shaking and everything is new and exciting.
0: Parties were organized around the explosions, which went off like clockwork every three weeks for nearly 12 years. Revelers gathered to watch the unholy sight before going back
2: for more cocktails and cards. So there's atomic-themed cocktails and atomic-themed uh, beauty pageants and people are actually invited to the desert to watch these nuclear tests unfold because it's american history actually happening in the present i will seek the desert's hush while the scenery is lush i long to see the mush a room of clouds amid the yuckers and the thistles, I'll watch the guided missiles while the old FBI
0: watches me. In many ways, yes, Vegas built its bones in part on the back of fears. atomic Spons tourism. The wild
5: west is where I want.
0: It was much the same just over the border. In St. George, Utah, no one blinked an eye when there was a flash in the pre dawn sky. Why would they? The American government had promised over and over again that this was perfectly safe. They were told to just leave their car windows open so they wouldn't break from the blasts. Soldiers even did tactical training near the tests, sometimes as close as two miles away. At the end of the day, a very high-tech device called a broom. Yep, a regular, ordinary broom was used to clean them off. And so, on May 19, 1953, no one was really ready for what was coming their way. Early that morning, the AEC had detonated a bomb codenamed Harry. But something had gone wrong the bomb released 20 kilotons over the recommended yield, which was quickly caught up in the winds, winds that had unexpectedly shifted to the east. When it
6: finally made it over to St. George, this radioactive cloud, which is strangely, they're pink in color. That's what the way they've been described. They're quite beautiful. So I'm sure people just went outside to see it.
2: Kids are actually going out and playing in this because it looks like snow. There's nuclear fallout that is raining down, sort of like ash, and people are opening their mouths to taste it and to sweep it and roll in it.
6: One expert said if it had rained that day, half of St. George would have succumbed to radiation sickness and death. It was that bad.
0: And St. George wasn't the only place the radioactive debris and dust were
2: falling. And it's collecting in this area, and then particularly in what is now a uh, State Park, uh, then known as uh, Snow Canyon. You remember the name Snow Canyon, right? And so that's where the film would actually be shot primarily, but in that point in time, it's this barren desert land where a lot of this fallout is collecting and then mixing in with the soil.
0: Almost immediately, AEC officials started downplaying the contamination, telling their field safety monitors that radioactive fallout from Harry was well within the limits of safety.
2: So when sheep start dying around St. George, Utah, and people are getting sick and people are just kind of fearful for their life and curious, well, should we be alarmed? Should we be worried? The AEC says, no, no, no worries at all. It's it's completely fine. You don't have to worry about it. There's no issues or, or health side effects. But the locals grew suspicious anyway. They were washing cars,
6: and um, people started to notice, you know, even car paint being bubbling up or something. Um... Some people who had been outdoors started to immediately, like, lose hair. Of course, you get very ill. You get sick physically. Um, maybe your, your fingernails, toenails fall off. You know, it's, a, it's just general
0: malaise. Realizing they had a public relations disaster, the AEC produced a newsreel. Featuring the people of St. George assuring everything was A-OK.
5: It's pre-dawn, 5 in the morning. Pretty deserted at this hour.
0: A newsreel full of folks who would grow sick and die over the next few years and decades.
5: Since the rest of the town was sound asleep, only our night owl saw it. That great flash in the western sky. An atomic bomb at the Nevada test site, 140 miles to the west.
6: It basically was just, you know, this dumbed-down propaganda film of, like, no need to worry, it's everything's okay.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this program to bring you important news. Due to a change in wind direction, the residue from this morning's atomic detonation is drifting in the direction of St. George. It is suggested that everyone remain indoors for one hour or until further notice. There is no danger.
0: Elmer Pickett, a local hardware store owner and part-time mortician, was one of the locals who appeared in the film. In the years that followed, he had a front row seat to his town's devastation.
6: He had nine family members die of cancers, which was completely unheard of. And he, as an undertaker, had so many children with leukemia. And they knew, like, you know, when you've been doing this for years and you're only seeing certain types of deaths and suddenly you're seeing this influx of all these people dying of cancer, you know something's wrong.
5: And as the people at St. George took cover, it was natural that some of them had questions about atomic tests. Questions like, why do we have to test bombs?
6: And to read his story, you know, is heartbreaking. (laughs) A very patriotic individual who feels duped by his government.
5: We have no choice. To fall behind any other nation in atomic progress is a national risk.
0: And so the test continued, and so did the lies.
6: It's been documented that the federal government considered the entire region, you know, east of the test site in these rural areas is kind of a throwaway population. Um, And if people would ask, they would be told, you know, you're not a patriot. And if they felt this way about white religious people, how did they feel about the indigenous communities? They didn't give a damn.
0: And it was right around this time, as the tides turned and nuclear hope turned into horror, that Hollywood came calling for production space out in that contaminated desert. They had a movie to make, after all. And no one once bothered to mention all that fallout.
4: Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or
6: is she just a social climber? I was silent.
0: Were you silent? Or were you
6: silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air? Or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast Infamous.
0: After 13 weeks of production out in the desert, everyone welcomed returning to the safe confines of the RKO backlot for a few last scenes. But Howard Hughes was unhappy with the footage, and he was the boss. He ordered them to reshoot large swaths of the film, and wanting it to match, he had 60 tons of red sand trucked in from Snow Canyon, the same sand
2: that had made Wayne's Geiger counter go wild just a few months earlier. No one to this day knows where the sand went. Some people think it went back to where Snow Canyon is, and some people think that they just swept it out of the studio and put it down the drain or put it somewhere in the local dump in Los Angeles.
0: As Hughes endlessly tinkered with the edit, months slipped by. The movie's budget grew to purportedly $6 million, making it one of the most expensive movies in history. Finally, desperately overleveraged and underwhelmed, Hughes sold RKO. He was done playing the movie Mogul.
2: Howard Hughes just decides, I can't do anything with the studio. I have to make money, and people are taking him to court. There's all these different actors who are suing him for a breach of contract, and so he just wants to leave, and that's what he does.
0: And so, by early 1956, the new owners of RKO movie-making savants straight from the General Tire and Rubber Company, rushed to get the only releasable movie they had into theaters. It had been almost two years since the picture had wrapped.
5: Temujin, under his heel, the cowering nations, in his arms, the unconquered woman. He took what he wanted when he wanted it.
0: On February 2nd, 1956, the Conqueror premiered in London before going on a road show of premieres around the world. Your hatred will kindle into love. The critics hated it. Before
3: that day dawns, Mongol, the vultures will feast feasted on your
0: heart. Time Magazine wrote, Wayne portrays The Great Conqueror as a sort of cross between a square shooting sheriff and a Mongolian idiot.
1: You do well, Kumlik, for while I have fingers to grasp a sword, And eyes to see, your treacherous head is not safe on your shoulders, nor your daughter in her bed.
0: Unfortunately for RKO, 1956 was a huge year for movies. Hit after hit was released, from Giant to The King and I, all building up to The Ten Commandments,
2: which was the true epic The Conqueror aspired to be. The Conqueror does quite well, actually but not enough to make its money back. And that really puts the, uh, the nail in the coffin of RKO. The old
0: studio system was dying, and RKO was its first corpse.
2: When RKO does wrap and it closes, and that's a big deal because this is one of the big five studios, one of the long-standing film studios, actually closing, going bankrupt, not surviving and being really the first... Uh, leaning uh, domino in the studio system's final era. It really marks the end of the Hollywood golden age.
0: But there were still a few highs to come, for the cast at least, before their good luck ran out. the lucky, lovely,
5: Susan Hayward, and I Want to Live!
0: Hayward managed to win an Oscar for I Want to Live in 1959. With The Conqueror in the can, Wayne kicked his amphetamine habit and went on to make The Searchers with director John Ford, perhaps Wayne's greatest movie.
1: She was wearing that blue dress. and she. What was- you saw wasn't Lucy. Oh, but it, it was, I tell you. What you saw was a buck. I found Lucy back in the canyon.
0: More than any of his other films, it grappled with his place as the American white hero born to kill Native Americans. It picked apart his manifest destiny image without the star even realizing it. Over the years, when The Conqueror came up, Wayne would tell people the one lesson he learned. Don't make an ass of yourself by trying to play parts you're not suited to. And that's how most people talked about it at first, as a flop, a financial disaster, if it was remembered at all. It wasn't until 1963 that the real worries began, that the body count started to pile up.
2: So first you get Dick Powell, who dies in the very beginning of 1963. And at that point, uh, a lot of people, you know, cancer is not in the forefront of people's minds. It's, it's there, it's happening. There's not much of a survival rate. So it's pretty much a death sentence uh, when you get cancer.
0: Following Dick Powell's death, the cast and the crew started falling one by one. Actor Pedro Armenderez, who had been cast as a key part in a James Bond picture from Russia with Love, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He shot the part, barely able to stand before being admitted to the hospital. Not wanting to face a grisly death, he smuggled in a gun and took his own life. Agnes Moorhead, who played Wayne's mother in The Conqueror, had gone on to great fame in the subsequent years thanks to the sitcom Bewitched.
4: And I want to thank you for your compliment, Darwin. Darren!
6: (laughs) that's right, Darwin.
0: (laughs) She died from uterine cancer in 1974, reportedly saying in her waning days, I never should have taken that part
2: she was one of the first and only to actually recognize that, hmm, maybe this nuclear fallout is to blame for cancer.
0: Cinematographers, makeup artists, sound designers, stuntmen, dozens and dozens of cast and crew began dying of cancer. A tumor was found on Susan Hayward's lung in 1972. She attempted to press on with her career, but was quickly overtaken by the disease. And the winner is Glenda Jackson. She made a final appearance at the 1974 Oscars, presenting an award before having a seizure backstage. It was her last public appearance before her death.
2: And the Duke didn't escape unscathed either. John Wayne got cancer in 1964, right when they just started to link, publicly link, Uh, smoking with lung cancer, and John Wayne was a heavy smoker. He would apparently light his next cigarette with the one that he was currently smoking and just do that the entire day. So
0: it wasn't a shock when he got the diagnosis, but it was still suspicious. He had a portion of his lung removed and was back on set within weeks, trying to prove he was still the
2: unstoppable force of American movies. He becomes one of the first major motion picture stars to actually make it public. He wanted to give people hope and tell people that you can survive, it's going to be okay. So he gives this huge press release, this this big statement, this interview, and he becomes a champion throughout the 1960s and 70s for the American Cancer Society.
1: That's me seven years after surgery, in true grit, because I did myself a favor and got a checkup. It's great to be alive.
0: Meanwhile, Wayne's politics continued to drift further and further right. His all-American apple pie image soured into something darker. Even as he marked career highs like True Grit, winning the Oscar for his portrayal of one-eyed United States Marshal Rooster Cogburn.
1: I want to thank the members of the Academy,
0: He was sullying his name in print. In an interview with Playboy in 1971, he laid bare the ugly beliefs behind his public persona.
4: There's a famous 1971 Playboy interview where he says really horrifying things about Native Americans. Uh, They were lazy, just wanted to take the land from people who really needed it.
0: Quote, I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from them. There were great numbers of people who needed new land and the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves.
4: And about African-Americans saying that the blacks simply were not responsible.
0: Wayne, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. He called Midnight Cowboy perverted and used the F-slur before extolling the virtues of healthy, lusty, heterosexual sex. Wayne's own cancer returned in 1979. A checkup turned into a nine-hour emergency surgery when the doctor found gastric carcinoma in his stomach and cancer cells in his lymph nodes. He quickly withered away in private except for one last appearance of his own at the Oscars.
1: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That's just about the only medicine
2: a fellow would ever really need. Uh, He comes out to a standing ovation, but he's not the same guy. He's actually wearing padding because he lost so much weight just to make him look more beefy in the John Wayne that we all know and love. And he's sweating and he's... He's he's really a different man, and this is his fond farewell.
0: Every ugly, unspoken part of his persona was finally laid bare, just as his time ran out. Wayne died in 1979, setting off a race of airports, schools, and highways to see what could be named after him the quickest. By
2: 1980... Out of 220 uh, cast and crew members, uh, there was just under 100, so it was in the 90s, of people who had gotten cancer between 1956 and 1980, and 46 people had died because of cancer. And most of those people were the people who were there every day, uh, most of them being the, the stars and the driving forces.
0: Howard Hughes, meanwhile, had escaped the darkening cloud hanging over this picture, but he was being chased by his own demons. Out of Hollywood, the tycoon soon found himself falling prey to his greatest fears.
2: He does start to get overtaken by this fear of germs. So in the late 1950s, that's when you get him locking himself in for weeks in a studio, peeing in jars, eating nothing but, I think, chocolate chip cookies.
0: Only later in life did it become clear that the compulsions related to his OCD were the cause of so many of Hughes's oddities. As the 70s progressed, he devolved behind closed doors, locked away, becoming a prisoner to his own obsessions.
2: His hair would grow down to his feet, his fingernails would grow very, very long, and uh, he would waste down to nothing. He was being injected with all these different medications. He wasn't eating. He was just a big fearful mess. And because he had that money, there would be no one to really question him and get him the help that he needed.
0: But even in this debilitated
2: state, one thing seemed to haunt him above all the rest. One of the last acts that he does that is very odd when you look at this story is that he tried to stop nuclear testing from happening. He tried to bribe some of the government officials actually sending his goons uh, to Lyndon B. Johnson and then Richard Nixon uh, to try and give them money to try and stop nuclear testing so people wouldn't be fearful. We don't know what he was thinking, but we know that The
0: Conqueror was never far from his mind. Having bought back the rights to the film, he kept it hidden away from the public, watching it over and over and over again. Some said it was guilt, others an obsession. There were rumors he even masturbated to it. He died in 1976, emaciated and delirious, a haunted broken man. In 1980, People magazine broke a bombshell when it reported the death toll from the cast and crew of The Conqueror. The kids of Dick Powell, John Wayne, and Susan Hayward were all quoted, accusing the government of negligence. Soon after, a federal scientist reportedly said, Please God, don't let us have killed John Wayne. The atomic age had turned very dark, very fast, and a large anti-nuclear movement was finally emerging.
3: There is not one of us who doesn't know that out there on the sunny side of the security blanket, this living world of ours has never known a single moment of such deadly jeopardy.
0: People had serious questions about the morality of weapons of mass destruction and the safety of nuclear power plants. It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare. As far as we know, at
5: this hour, no worse than that. But a government official said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date.
0: And the people who had gotten sick as a result of nuclear testing fallout were banding together. These were the so-called downwinders. And now with news of John Wayne's cancer possibly being linked to the Nevada testing in the 1950s, this group of activists from the fallout zone saw an opportunity for justice. In 1982, a group of plaintiffs brought the United States to court on behalf of nearly 400 cancer victims. After a two-month trial, the judge would rule that fallout had killed people. Ten people, to be precise, but it was a start. Unfortunately, the cast and crew of The Conqueror weren't addressed in the lawsuit. We don't know for certain how many people it killed, but it seems clear that nuclear testing reached farther and did more damage than anyone was prepared to admit. Physicist, author, and professor Ernest Sternglass even declared that one in three children who died before their first birthday in America in the 60s died because of peacetime nuclear testing. In the 1980s, Utah Governor Scott Matheson made it his mission to help as many of the victims as possible. He himself had been a child when the fallout rained down on his home state. It was personal, perhaps too personal. Matheson died of cancer soon thereafter.
2: And It's not until 1990 uh, that there is uh, a a bill that's passed to actually give um, reparations to people who may or or were affected by nuclear contaminations.
0: The cast and crew of the Conqueror weren't addressed in the lawsuit. Too much time had passed. Finally, a few families managed to get some meager restitution, but not everyone got their fair share. American
1: opportunity has no limits, has been known to knock more than once.
0: Remember all those Native American tribes from the area? The ones whose land these tests were conducted on? The ones who went on to see the biggest movie star in the world kill their kind in movie after movie?
1: Every man and woman or child wants one thing more than anything else in the world. That one thing is tomorrow.
0: Well, no one knows exactly how many of them died from the fallout because no one in power ever really bothered to look.
1: This is my country and I'm gonna do good for it. Just might work.
0: I guess they were just too busy watching John Wayne movies.
1: Oh yeah, and there's one other thing. I say it every day of my life. God bless America. Land that I
5: love God Bless a man, my home,
0: Unlock all episodes of Death on the Lot ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge our new podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of the show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and a podcasts all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, subscribers get a binge drop. That's not my phrase, by the way, but I'm going to say it. They get a binge drop of a brand new series. That's all episodes all at once. Unlock your listening now by clicking subscribe at the top of the Death on the Lot show page on Apple Podcasts or visit GetTheBinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Death on the Lot is a Hyper Object Industries and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's executive produced by Jody Avergan, Claire Slaughter, Harry Nelson and me, Adam McKay. Episodes were written by Brian Steele and Hadley Mears and edited by Jody Avergan. Our managing producer was Jennifer Siegel and talent producer was Catherine Shoemaker. Producers were Shane McKeon and Kendra Hanna, with additional production support from Jordan Allen and Zaley Mahone. Consultants on the show were Justin Geldzahler and Sarah Mathis. Episodes were fact-checked by Matt Giles and Tom Cody. Our music is by Beacon Street Studios. Episodes were mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks on this episode to Professor Xavier Arujo. I'm your host, Adam McKay. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you're hearing this, thank you for joining us for the whole season.